electrician is a field where someone can be seen by the public as an expert simply because of the way they eat and the benefits it has had for them. So is it any wonder that nutrition is also an area that is ripe for the propagation of all manner of myths and falsehoods? Some of these myths are born from a base of science, but as science advances, these myths should be called out for what they are. In this podcast, I'll go over some of the more popular myths I've come across and explain where the truth really lies. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language and then translating this into what it means for your health. So on with today's show. When it comes to food and health, we are all our own experts on eating. This is as it should be. Being an expert on one's eating preferences though does not make one a nutrition expert. You wouldn't fly a plane that was piloted by someone who got all their flying experience from their games console flying simulator. You wouldn't cross a bridge over a deep chasm that was built by someone whose engineering experience was from playing with their Lego blocks. And you also wouldn't allow yourself to be operated on by someone who read the Wikipedia entry on gallbladder removal and watched a few episodes of ER. Yet move to the field of nutrition, and it is the wild west of anything goes. A realm where expertise is measured by the ability of someone to repeat blog opinions and quote a few sentences from scientific papers that agree with their point of view. So this all makes for fertile ground for myths and poor advice to propagate. That doesn't mean that scientists don't get it wrong too. They do. But as research and evidence changes, so too should the advice. But some advice that was accepted as fact and later was shown to be not so factual does stick around for some time. So today, here are some of the more popular myths I've come across over the years. The first myth is that a slow metabolism is to blame for many people's weight gain. People who struggle to lose weight often blame their difficulty in achieving this on their slow metabolism. So is this a real barrier to weight loss, or is the real culprit an excess of food and a deficit of exercise? First, let's consider the term metabolism. It means the process by which the body converts food into energy. So far from being responsible for weight gain, someone with a truly slow metabolism wouldn't get all of the available energy from the food they eat, and they would actually lose weight. A much more relevant term and this is what most people mean when they talk about metabolism, is metabolic rate. This is the energy, measured in kilojoules, a person expends over the course of a day just to keep their body functioning. Maintaining body temperature, breathing, 
blood circulation and repairing cells are all essential requirements for a functioning body. These processes are always happening and they use a lot of energy. So can a sluggish metabolism be blamed for weight gain? Except for certain endocrine disorders such as hypothyroidism or Cushing syndrome, the answer is a clear no. People who are overweight actually have higher resting metabolic rates on average than people of a lower body weight. As someone gains more weight from storing more fat, the body needs to support that excess mass to move it around. Imagine you had to live with a 20 kilogram weight tied around your waist. You would struggle to deal with this for the first few weeks, but over time you would build up extra muscle, especially in your legs, to help support it. Slow and insidious weight gain just gives more time for your body to adapt. And more muscle equals a higher metabolic rate at rest. Also, with an increase in body size, there is a change in internal organ size and fluid volume, which further increases the metabolic rate. Another common reason a slow metabolism is blamed for weight gain is the perception that an overweight person eats very little and still gains weight. But the research shows people tend to eat more than they think and will typically report eating less food than they actually do. And this difference happens the more that their body weight goes up. Increasing portion sizes may also affect what people now consider an average portion size for meals they serve themselves at home, a phenomenon called portion distortion. The bigger a person is, the more likely they are to overestimate what a standard portion size is. So is it possible to speed up metabolism? There are many pills, supplements and foods that claim to boost metabolism and burn fat. Most of these claims are unproven. Some substances such as caffeine and chili do have a small effect, but not in supplement form. And the effect is very small. So staying on the metabolism theme, another myth is well-meaning advice that to help lose weight, you need to eat lots of smaller meals to help boost your metabolism. Now, digestion does raise your metabolism a little. It is called the thermic effect of food. So many people believe that eating less food more often keeps your metabolism elevated. However, it is the size of the meal that matters the most for this thermic effect, not how often you eat. Fewer but larger meals mean fewer but larger spikes in your metabolism. And there is enough research now to show that there is no right way to space your meals out over the day. Some people do well on just two to three meals per day with no snacking, while others go best on smaller meals spaced over the day. More to the point, given an equal amount of daily calories, the number of meals eaten makes no difference in fat loss. But if you find smaller meals helps keep your appetite in check and stops you overeating, then that's the path for you. And if the opposite of just sticking to main meals and no snacks works for you, then that's the right path for you. There is no significant metabolism boosting effect by spacing out small meals all over the course of the day. Another favorite myth is the concept of negative calorie foods, such as celery, which claim to burn up more energy than you consume. 
If only it was as simple as eating your way to thinness. But there is no such thing as a negative calorie food. Even the humble stick of celery, while being about 95% water, still contains a small number of kilojoules from carbohydrate. 65 kilojoules to be exact. There is though an energy cost to your body in digesting food, but that equates to about 10% of the energy in the food. So even celery adds some kilojoules to your diet. And while it's a small number, it's definitely not a negative number. How foods like celery, lettuce and broccoli can help you lose weight is if your mouth is full of celery, then there's no room to fit in burgers and fries. The next two myths are in the area of exercise. And the first one is that you need to exercise in the fat burning zone if you want to lose weight. You've probably seen those wall charts in gyms. Warming advice claims that you need to exercise at a low to moderate level of intensity to burn fat. Now, yes, it is true that the body burns the greatest percentage of fat at lower intensities of aerobic exercise. But at higher intensities, you burn way more total kilojoules and more fat kilojoules overall. If you are only concerned about burning the greatest percentage of kilojoules from fat, then sleeping is where it is at. But the total energy cost of this is tiny. So low intensity workouts do promote weight and fat loss. You just have to do them for a longer time. When time is limited to exercise, then it makes sense to work as hard as you can safely do to get the most health, performance, and weight loss gains from it. Another myth is that exercise makes you eat more food and gain weight. It is time to ignore any advice you hear that all your sweat and hard work in the gym is sabotaging your weight loss efforts by causing you to eat more. It should be easy to see how just a simple observation can show this view to be false. Just look at any group of high-performing athletes, such as marathon runners, cyclists, or swimmers. These athletes put in hours and hours of training each day, so surely they should all be obese from the amounts of foods that they are eating. Yes, such athletes eat a lot more food than the average person, but it is all used up in their training endeavors. So, is this useful anecdote supported by science? Most definitely. A review of published studies teased out the different effects that dieting and exercise can have on weight loss, and I'll link to the paper in the show notes. The firm conclusion of the review was perhaps not so surprising. Exercise has a modest but consistent benefit on body fat reduction, and this benefit is independent of dieting. The authors also found evidence to support a dose effect with increasing amounts of exercise leading to greater weight loss. The more you move, the more you lose. Giving a small amount of credence to this myth though, the review did note that short term at least, increases in hunger soon after exercising is a real effect that does cause a person to eat more. Longer term though, there is an overall decrease in a person's feeling of hunger. And while exercise may be really overplayed as the key to weight loss, irrespective of this, every little bit of exercise has some benefit for your health. And my final myth for today is the one that goes that microwaving food destroys nutrients. Just no. Microwaving has no more effect on the nutrients in food than any other way of heating food. Heat does cause a small drop 
in some nutrients, such as folate, vitamin C, and thiamine. So this can never be avoided, no matter how you cook your food, be it on the stovetop, oven, or microwave. The advantage of using a microwave, though, is it helps retain more nutrients. This is because of the shorter cooking time, which means less time for heat to affect sensitive nutrients. And as a bonus, with little water needed, there are minimal losses from nutrient leaching as well. So now on to my research wrap-up segment, where I profile a study that has grabbed my attention during the week. And for this week, it is about new research that finds that the health halo we may attribute to foods may just wind up with us overindulging in less healthy foods after it. Wanting to eat healthy is a continual goal of many. In our current food environment, it may be difficult to know just what foods are the healthiest for us, especially when it comes to packaged and labelled foods. It is possible that foods considered as healthy may not always be the best choice, especially if they still contain a lot of overly processed ingredients, including added sugar. Previous research has found that sugary foods can make a person feel hungrier later on in the day, meaning they are more likely to overeat. How the sugar content level of a food can affect later snacking behaviors and what effect reframing the food as healthy could have on snacking was the focus of a new research study. And I'll link to this research in the show notes. Now, in the first part of the experiment, 76 university students were randomly given either a high sugar or low sugar shake to drink. This was followed 20 minutes later by being given potato chips to snack on while watching a video. The quantity of chips eaten was measured during the snacking, but to remove potential bias, the volunteers were only told they were eating the chips to see how well they went with the video. So never trust a researcher if you get involved in a study. They'll always misrepresent the truth of their study to avoid some bias. People who had the high sugar drink did consume more potato chips than the low sugar group, which was actually not so surprising, but provided an important lead in finding to the more interesting second part of the experiment. In the second phase of the experiment, the researchers wanted to see if changing a person's perception of the healthiness of the shakes would influence their snacking behavior. For this experiment, the same shakes that were used in the first part of the experiment were used again, but this time they were labeled. The low sugar shake was labeled as healthy living, with the nutrition information panel showing it was low in fat, sugar, and kilojoules. The high sugar shake was labeled as indulgent, and the nutrition information panel gave details of the high fat, sugar, and kilojoule content. The 193 volunteers were randomly given one of the labeled shakes, and then similar to the first experiment, spent time afterwards watching a video while snacking on potato chips. People who drank the indulgent labeled high sugar shake actually ate fewer potato chips compared to those who drank the low sugar shake labeled as healthy. And this was certainly a surprising finding because it was the opposite of what happened in the first experiment. So what is likely going on here? When people believe a food is healthy, they may not give as much mental thought to what they're eating. So normal physiological factors that respond to food take over. 
But if someone believes a food is unhealthy, they may be able to override their physical impulses later in the day, knowing that what they ate was not so healthier later on, and perhaps adjust their snacking habits on the fly as they're eating later in the day. When people believe a food is healthy, they may think it gives them license to make other food choices that may be less healthy. So what's the takeaway message from this research? It may be better to read the nutrition information panel and ingredient list to determine yourself if a food meets your own definition of healthy or not, rather than be directed that way by packaging labels and marketing spin. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. <music>